Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Hello, hello, everyone. What is up? Welcome back to another episode of Killer Instinct, you guys. Thanks for joining me today. I hope y'all are having a great day, a great week. Now, if you are new here, hi, my name is Savannah, and I am your host of the Killer Instinct podcast. You can go ahead and follow us on Instagram at just at Killer Instinct podcast, and also make sure you are subscribed to the podcast wherever you are listening to it. Now, as you guys can tell by the title of today's episode, today we are talking about the unsolved murder of Jennifer Lockmiller. Jennifer was 22 years old when she was found brutally murdered in her apartment. Now, this is a very interesting case because at one point in time, Jennifer's case was actually a solved case, which makes this case a little bit different and a little bit unique. And I am really, really interested to hear what you guys have to say about this one and hear what your theories are. So with that all being said, let's jump right on into it today. Jennifer Lockmiller was born on January 11th, 1971 to her parents, Richard and Norma Lockmiller. Now, Jennifer was born in a town called Decatur, Illinois, and she was the youngest of five children. And not only was she the youngest of five, but she was also the only daughter. So she grew up having four older brothers. And Jennifer's described as being brilliant, beautiful, and talented. She was incredibly smart. By the age of three and a half, she actually taught herself to read. And from the age of seven to 14, she studied piano at a university's prep program and performed in recitals. Along with all of that, in 1989, she was the honors graduate of her high school, which was Eisenhower High School. Now, something that Jennifer did struggle with growing up was an eating disorder. More specifically, she struggled with anorexia. When Jennifer got to high school, she really felt pressured by the standard to be perfect, so she wanted to lose some weight, and her desire to lose weight became her obsession, and she really suffered because of it, and she ended up being hospitalized multiple times for this. After being hospitalized, Jennifer and her mother decided that they wanted to do some good out of what Jennifer had gone through. So they actually ended up starting a support group for eating disorders, and they would also go on to speak publicly at different events about the struggles that come with an eating disorder. Now, after graduating high school, Jennifer went on to attend Illinois Wesleyan College, which is located in Bloomington, Illinois. However, shortly after she transferred to Illinois State University, which is located in Normal, Illinois. Now, when Jennifer got to the first college she attended, Illinois College, her eating disorder did start up again, and she had to be put on some medication for it. However, by the time she got to Illinois State University, she had completely overcome this. Now, Jennifer was an extremely gifted and talented writer, and she went to Illinois State University to study journalism. And 
once she got there, she also got a job with the school's newspaper. Another one of Jennifer's passions was music. She was incredibly, incredibly creative and just loved any sort of artistic outlet and music was one of those. She specifically loved the Beatles, so much so that she actually named her dog Abby after the album Abbey Road by the Beatles. Now, Jennifer lived alone in an apartment located on 412 Main Street in Normal, Illinois, and for all things considered, she lived a very normal life. However, on August 24th, 1993, Jennifer had made plans with one of her friends. This friend was named Morgan Keefe. Now, Jennifer and Morgan made these plans together. However, Jennifer never showed up for their plans. And this struck Morgan as very odd because this wasn't something that Jennifer would typically do. And if anything, Jennifer would definitely have made sure to communicate with Morgan that she wasn't going to be able to make their plans. So at that point, Morgan thought it was very possible that Jennifer had something come up. She had something going on. So she decided to give it a couple of days. However, after four days had passed and Morgan still hadn't heard from Jennifer, that is when she went over to her apartment herself. When Morgan got to Jennifer's apartment on August 28th, 1993, the door was actually unlocked when Morgan got there. So she ended up letting herself in. And when she did, she found Jennifer's body lying on the floor dead. Jennifer had been brutally, brutally murdered. She was actually found with a pair of scissors protruding out of her chest, as well as a cable wire wrapped around her neck that ended up suffocating her. Along with all of that, there also was signs that Jennifer had been sexually assaulted during her attack. Now, after discovering Jennifer's body, Morgan immediately contacted the normal police department and they arrived to the scene right away. And by the time the medical examiner also arrived on the scene, they concluded that by the time Jennifer's body was discovered, Jennifer had already been dead from anywhere between two to four days. So it's very likely that when Jennifer and Morgan had these plans, Jennifer was already dead. Now, something that authorities also noticed when they canvassed Jennifer's apartment was the fact that there didn't seem to be any struggle or any sign of forced entry, which indicated to police that more than likely Jennifer knew the person that was coming into her apartment that day. Not only would she have not have opened the door to a stranger, but if a stranger did have to get into the apartment, they would have had to find some way to get in on their own. And whoever did this to Jennifer looked like they just walked right on in. Now, at first, police ran through that apartment head to toe, trying to find any viable pieces of DNA evidence anywhere. Now, now, when they removed the cord from around Jennifer's neck, the cord that was suffocating her, they realized that this cord belonged to an alarm clock. And when they tested it for any DNA, they found that there were three separate sets of fingerprints on this alarm clock cord. The first set of fingerprints came from Jennifer's current boyfriend at the time of her murder, and this was a man named Michael Swine. Now, Michael and Jennifer's story is pretty interesting because Michael and Jennifer had dated for about two months leading up to her murder, and they originally got together on June 11th, 1993. But the reason that their relationship was a little bit complicated was because Michael was the roommate of Jennifer's ex-boyfriend, and that would be a man named Alan Beeman. Imagine an app designed to make you use it less. Seems a little counterproductive, right? 
Well, Apartments.com's Instant Alert feature works exactly that way. Instead of scanning rental listings a million times a day, simply set and forget your search to whatever you're looking for in a place and let Apartments.com do the rest. From pet-friendly apartments to balconies to in-unit ACs, Apartments.com's powerful search tools let you know when the perfect combination of features you're seeking is listed. So you don't have to power through rental descriptions one by one. With more rental listings than anywhere else, Apartments Apartments.com's instant alerts mean that you can spend less time looking for the perfect place and more time on just doing you. Apartments.com, the place to find a place. Now, Alan was a 21-year-old student at the time of the murder, and he had also dated Jennifer for several months before the two decided to officially call it quits in March 1993, which is just a couple months before Michael and Jennifer made it official. Alan was a theater major who grew up in Rockford, Illinois, which was about a two-hour drive from normal Illinois. And just for clarification purposes, even though Alan did grow up in Rockford, he was currently living in normal. Now, Alan and Jennifer's relationship was anything but smooth sailing. The two of them were constantly breaking up and getting back together. It was even said that they broke up a total of eight times throughout the course of their relationship. One of Alan's friends described their relationship as being the type where they would break up one week and get engaged the next. It was very, very rocky and up and down. So just for clarification purposes, let's break this down one last time. Michael and Alan were roommates and Alan had dated Jennifer for several months. And once Alan and Jennifer officially broke up, Michael, who was Alan's roommate, also then dated Jennifer as well. Now you might be wondering, who did the second set of fingerprints that were found on this cord belong to? And that would be none other than Alan Beeman. Now you do have to also look at this in a bigger picture perspective, because is it that out of the blue to think that Jennifer's boyfriend and her ex-boyfriend's DNA would be on an alarm clock cord, considering they had probably been in that apartment many, many, many times prior to this. But regardless, now you have Jennifer's ex-boyfriend and current boyfriend's DNA on the cord. And there also was no DNA found on the scissors that ended up in Jennifer's chest. But you also might be wondering who the third set of fingerprints belonged to. And that belonged to a John Doe. It was an unidentified male that we're going to get a little bit more into in a minute. But at first, they were not able to identify who this man was. Now, a lot of people who knew Alan from theater said that he did not have a mean bone in his body. They described him as being very warm and gentle and kind. However, the people who knew him outside of theater and the people who knew him from his relationship with Jennifer claim different. Friends and family of Jennifer told police that Alan had an extremely bad temper and he would oftentimes lash out at Jennifer. There were times that Alan had broken down doors in Jennifer's apartment, he had thrown chairs, and there was even one instance where Jennifer's friend had to pepper spray Alan to get him to leave Jennifer's apartment. Now, as you would imagine, someone like Alan probably wasn't the most excited by the idea that his roommate was dating Jennifer. However, according to Michael, he said that Alan took the news a lot better at first than he expected him to. However, over time, Alan started writing Jennifer letters, and these letters consisted of anything from sexual fantasies that he had with Jennifer to just strictly a jealous and angry rage over the fact that they had broken up. Now, let's 
talk about alibis for a second because both Michael and Alan both have alibis for the day of the murder. Now, according to Alan, he said that on the day of the murder, he was working in Elmhurst. Elmhurst was where Michael's parents lived and he was staying with them during the time of the murders. And Michael's parents confirmed that this was true as well as other witnesses who said that they saw Michael in Elmhurst around that time. Now, as far as Alan's alibi goes, Alan claimed that he was in Rockford at the time of the murder, which again is where he's from and where he grew up. And according to him, he spent the day at his parents' house while his parents were both out and his mom did end up coming home and saw him later in the afternoon. Now, here's where Alan's alibi gets a little bit tricky though, because authorities thought it was very, very possible that if Alan wanted to commit this murder on this specific day, he could have easily driven the two hours from Rockford to Normal and then back from Normal to Rockford and still be back home by the time his mom ended up returning to the house. So because of that, authorities really weren't convinced of Alan's alibi, regardless of the fact that there were multiple people who claimed to have seen Alan while he was in Rockford. So here's where this case gets a little bit frustrating because authorities basically had pinned this entire case on Alan from the beginning. Even though there was an unidentified male's DNA found on that cord wrapped around Jennifer's neck, authorities were basically convinced that Alan had the motive and he had the rage in him to carry out a murder like this. So they ended up arresting him and charging him for the murder of Jennifer Lockmiller. To add on to the possible motive, regardless of the motive just being that Alan didn't want Jennifer in a relationship with anyone else, just several days prior to Jennifer's murder, Michael, Jennifer's boyfriend at the time, had actually moved into the apartment with her. So the timing of that is really interesting if you think about it. The fact that just a couple days after moving in with Jennifer, Jennifer ends up murdered. That could have definitely been a trigger for Alan, having his roommate move out of his apartment to move in with his ex-girlfriend. Okay, we're going to take a short break, but we will be right back with more of the Killer Instinct podcast. All right, you guys, welcome back. Now, from the beginning, Alan maintained his innocence and claimed that he had absolutely nothing to do with Jennifer's murder. However, Alan really didn't help his case because in the trial, which began in 1995, Alan was very cocky and very arrogant. He acted as if he loved the attention that he was getting, and he was extremely unemotional, which as we've seen in the past, has always led people to believe that there is some sort of guilt going on. Now, Alan was represented by an attorney named named William Bowe and pled not guilty to the charges against him. Now, Michael actually testified during the trial and really hammered in on the fact that Alan was this jealous, crazy, obsessed ex-boyfriend who was upset over the fact that Jennifer had moved on. Michael said that Jennifer had expressed interest in him prior to ever breaking up with Alan, and that also made Alan very, very angry. Michael even recalled an instance where at the very end of Jennifer's relationship with Alan, the very last time they broke up, Michael went over to Jennifer's apartment to console her and make her feel better. And while he was there, 
Alan came over and started banging on the door, demanding to come inside. And Michael said that he was so startled by this incident that he ended up hiding in Jennifer's closet under a pile of clothes just so Alan wouldn't find him. Along with that, Michael even said that Alan was then going through Jennifer's trash cans to see if she was taking birth control to indicate whether or not she had been sleeping with anyone else. In April of 1995, Alan Beeman was found guilty of the murder of Jennifer Locke Miller, and the following month in May 1995, he was sentenced to 50 years in prison for this. So Alan goes to jail, he's sentenced for 50 years, and this case for multiple years following this remained solved because Alan had been found guilty. But this case does not end here. In 2008, the Illinois Supreme Court actually reversed Allen's conviction. They claimed that the prosecution violated Allen's constitutional right in that they did not give him a fair trial, and they actually called for him to get a whole new one. This time, Allen's lawyer was a woman named Karen Daniel, and she argued to the court in 2008 that the jury did not hear the evidence that could have eliminated Allen as a suspect in the original trial. And along with that, she said the jury also did not hear about any other potential suspects, such as the unidentified male whose fingerprints were found on the alarm clock cord. Now, what's extremely odd about this John Doe male is the fact that apparently authorities are aware of who this man is and that information was presented in the trial. However, the identity of this man has never been released to the public. What we know about this man is that he allegedly had a romantic relationship with Jennifer. He lived about two miles away from her. However, along with that, he also has a history of domestic violence. He was actually charged once with domestic battery, and it is alleged that he had given Jennifer some sort of drug and was waiting for her payment on said drug. Now, we don't know what the drugs were. We really don't know anything about this man. And it's very interesting to see that this man's identity is almost being protected from the public. Allen's lawyer, Karen, even claimed that John Doe had actually taken a polygraph test in regards to Jennifer's murder, and he completely failed the polygraph test. Karen argued that from the very beginning, police just wanted to pin this on Allen because it was the easy thing to do. It was the easy way to close this case because they knew that Allen had the motive and more than likely would have been found guilty. This second trial also focused a lot on what Allen was doing the day of the murder and his alibi. Now, what we know is that, again, he was in Rockford at the time, but there actually was a bank receipt from a bank that Allen had went to, and this bank receipt was for 10 11 a.m. on the day of the murder. And along with that, there were also two telephone calls that were made from Allen's home to the church that Allen attended. And again, Allen was the only one at his home until later that afternoon. So he would have been the only one making those phone calls. But sadly, other than that, there really was no evidence as to where exactly Allen was the day of the murder. Regardless of that though, after hearing all of this through the second trial, the court Court agreed that this was all enough evidence to prove that Allen was not guilty of this. So on January 29th, 2009, 
all charges against Allen had been completely dropped and he was released from prison. And what's even crazier is that in 2012, it was actually released that there were an additional two sets of fingerprints found on the alarm clock cord along with the three others that authorities had originally found. So now you have Michael's fingerprints, Allen's fingerprints, John Doe's fingerprints, and two other unidentified male's fingerprints. In April of 2013, Allen was given $182,000 in state compensation for the time that he had served in prison. He did try and file a lawsuit in 2014 against the courts. However, that ended up being dropped. So now that Allen is set free, it really circles back to the question of who did this to Jennifer? And that brings up the other question of who is John Doe? Why is he being protected? Is he being protected because he is somehow involved in law enforcement or knows someone who's involved in law enforcement? And now along with that, you have the other additional two sets of DNA fingerprints that were found on the alarm clock cord. More likely than not, one of the DNA prints from the alarm clock cord belongs to the killer of Jennifer. And if it's not Michael, and if it's not Alan, it has to be either John Doe or one of the other two. It also brings to the question of why were police trying to pin this on Alan? Were they trying to steer the attention onto Alan in order to cover up for someone else? Or was it because this was just an easy way to close a case? Or was it because they actually believe that Alan was guilty of this? Now, the three main theories here are one, Alan Beeman still is guilty of this and he was released from prison. The second theory, which I'm sure some of you have thought of at this point, is that Michael is potentially responsible for this. Now, Michael was out of town at the time, which I also find to be interesting. The fact that both Alan and Michael were coincidentally out of town during the murder. I think that that's very interesting. To me, it says a couple things. The first being they had no involvement in it. However, Jennifer knew that Michael was going to be out of town and decided to invite someone over, which to me brings up the question of who would this person be? And to that, I would look to Jennifer's friends. I would look to anyone who would possibly know if Jennifer was hanging out with anyone else during that time. It also, to me, could mean that Michael and Alan specifically got out of town strategically in order to have a solid alibi. And along with that, they could have potentially hired someone to murder Jennifer. However, there really was no motive as far as Michael goes to murder Jennifer. What would Michael's motive really be there? There just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. However, it is very interesting, the timing of it all. And the third theory here is that it was either John Doe or one of the other two sets of fingerprints found that still have not been identified to this day. And that really is the case of Jennifer Locke Miller. And I am extremely, extremely curious to hear what you guys have to say about this one. All right, you guys, that is going to be all for me today. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Killer Instinct. Go leave your theories for this case on our Instagram page. It's just at Killer Instinct Podcast again, or you can email us at Killer Instinct Podcast at gmail.com. Again, that's just Killer Instinct Podcast at gmail.com where you can also send any case requests, suggestions, questions, theories, all of those things there as well. If you're new here, like I said earlier, hi, my name is Savannah and I am your host of Killer Instinct. We post episodes weekly every Wednesday and you're not going to want to miss it. So make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button. I will be back next week for a brand new case for you guys. And until then, stay safe.
our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.